Hello, you're listening to the Demographicast. Uh, today, I'm joined, as always, by Jack Street and by Owen Jones. Uh, how are you guys doing today? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, good, good. Uh, Owen, did you want to quickly give a bit of a, a, a bio of yourself to you know tell tell the audience who you are? Sure. So, my name's Owen, uh, Owen Jones, not to be confused with the journalist <laughs> Owen Jones, which happens a surprising amount of time. Um, I'm 22, um, from Edinburgh at the moment. I'm originally from Edinburgh, but I've lived in Lancaster as well, Lancashire. Um, and I studied politics and religious studies, um, so I just graduated um, in the summer just gone, and I'm currently working in the civil service, so very interested in politics, and um, I'm looking really looking forward to this discussion today. Cool. Nice. Um, yeah, so today we're going to be talking about uh, Scottish independence, um, starting off with how the UK recently obviously has completely left the EU. Uh, we finally got a trade deal and um, we have dragged Scotland out uh, finally after they voted in the 2016 referendum to, to stay in by uh, quite a majority. Um, so obviously back in 2014, I think most people remember, there was a Scottish independence referendum um, and they voted 55% uh, against leaving the United Kingdom. Um, but there's obviously been a lot that's happened over the last, uh, well, since then, over the last seven years. Um, and with us now out of the EU and uh, various things happening, I'm just kind of curious, knowing for, knowing from you, Owen, what your, your stance as a Scotman, Scotsman is on um, another independence referendum well i was a, a diehard nationalist for many a year um i'm not anymore so quite a long story as to why um i think that i can i can see the case for a second referendum i definitely can see the case for it um i think that i think that a lot has changed as you mentioned and i think that's a big reason that, as to why the smp can justify demanding a second referendum especially given that Scotland's place within the EU was quite a big part of the independence referendum debate. Um, there was a lot of talk from the no, the unionist side that if Scotland was to leave the UK, that it would, it would have to go sort of to the back of the queue. That was the word they used. It would have to join the EU again, which created quite a lot of fear in Scotland. Um, I also think that ultimately Scotland did vote to stay in the UK quite considerably. And I'm not a fan of having referendums more than once if it's been decided for a while. Um, I think in principle, it was decided Scottish people voted quite considerably to, to stay part of the UK and whatever that entails. And that entailed a vote to leave the EU. So I definitely think there's arguments on both sides. I personally think that I personally, I don't really have a strong opinion. I mean, I think I, I, I'd rather Scotland did stay part of the UK at the moment. Um, but I, I know so many people who really were desperate for an independence referendum and i completely completely understand why there's a case for it to be made sure um and it's an sure. issue that i i really think that it's like it's not fashionable to be quite neutral on it most people are quite decidedly one or the other there is a third a third group there sure uh, if your argument is you mentioned that you sort of you're kind of against the idea of a referendum happening again if it's already happened uh you know within recent memory does that uh, is that not affected at all by the um, obviously the dramatic changes in circumstances that have happened since then, particularly obviously leaving the EU? 
I mean, I, I, I definitely think that's one of the reasons as to why, as I mentioned, the whole thing about how the unionist campaign did make a big point out of staying in the EU. Um, and I, I think that's one justification. But I think I'm not against having an independence referendum full stop ever again. I think talk about being in like 50 odd, 100 odd years is a bit dramatic. But for example, when Quebec had its independence referendum, I think they maybe had about a 20 year gap between, or maybe 15, 20 year gap between years, which I think is quite reasonable. Mm. Um, I think, yes, a lot has changed in the last five years in British, well, five, ten years, whatever it's been. And Scottish politics and British politics move very quickly. But I also think that, again, that decision was made. And you, again, you can't just keep having a referenda until you get the answer you desire, I don't think. Um, I think that, I think Scottish independence is pretty inevitable. I do think that's the case. I also think that it's a it's a big exercise to have to fund this other referendum campaign while all the stuff with COVID is going on we you know we don't we don't we quite even know the economic implications of that yet um so both funding an independence campaign itself plus the financial ramifications it's going to have anyway it just seems like a very very risky move at this time yeah. um i think even nationals who are quite convinced of that should be able to see that's the case i think hope <laughs> sure um what what exactly is the sentiment like over there in Scotland on um on the British government at the moment? Do you think or on Parliament itself? Because I know Boris Johnson has sort of explicitly said there won't be a second independence uh, referendum. What do you know? What is the sentiment like? Can you tell us? Sort of in general towards the British government. Yeah, um, yeah, and then you can explain yeah. your your own sentiment as well if you'd like. Yeah. Um. Well, I think there's. I think people in general they don't really identify that strongly with a British identity. I think even if they would vote to remain in the UK, I think most people still identify as Scottish solely. I mean, you've seen that in the last census in 2011, for example, as well before the independence referendum, a vast majority of Scots only identified as Scottish. Mm. So I think that people, I think a lot of people think of the British government almost as an afterthought. I think they kind of think of the Scottish government, Nicola Sturgeon, before they think of Boris Johnson and the UK government in terms of who is their leader. Um, I think that and it's hard for me as well to tell because I lived in England for three years for uni. I was there most of that three years. So um, it's a bit different for me. But my family are all very um, pro-independence. Um, I think a lot of them would just criticise the British government and especially the Conservative government for regardless of what it was doing. Um, but some of them, I think, have softened their opinion slightly because of COVID and slightly because they can see that even if things haven't really gone completely to plan or completely as they would like, there's a sense of understanding given the circumstances. And um, I think as well, I mean, my mum, for example, she's really pro-independence and I, I actually got her into being so, a nationalist and I'm not anymore, so it's a strange situation we have. <laughs> but um, she was our diehard nationalist now. But she's quite fatigued with certain aspects. She loves Nicola Surgeon still, but there are certain things, for example, Scotland's quite behind in the vaccine rollout compared to yeah. England. Um, there have been certain things like that that have come up and that I think that there are cracks forming kind of towards the SNP slightly. Um, but going back to the British government, I think a lot of people don't really think about it. I think it is, Scotland's become a lot more Scotland-centric in the last few decades, which is understandable as we have a powerful parliament, you know. Yeah. I think even if you're a unionist, it's probably still the case to an extent. Um, so yeah, I think that's pretty much, there's. it's almost like, um, not even that they have this, real hatred for the British government it's more just like a it's just kind of a, a, a sort of apathy sure. yeah. I think for many many people that's the, a similar feeling 
uh, down here as well. I mean, maybe there's more frustration, but I think a lot of people feel so fatigued with the situation at the moment and there's not even necessarily a real sense of activism towards changing things. It's just, it's tiredness, it's fatigue, it's apathy. I, th- mm. I think it's, I, I feel like I understand the frustration from um, many nationalists in terms of feeling like uh, Scotland's been put in a position where against their will um, in mm. terms of leaving the EU and the economic ramifications, the, the p- position that I think I, I sit in is that Scottish independence, you know, may, may be inevitable at some point, but right now isn't, it isn't going to fix any of those problems. So, you know, so if um, Scotland were to become independent, like you, you mentioned earlier, le- rejoining the EU will be a long process. Um, it's not going to be immediate because the EU can't, I don't think, make that uh, decision just to allow Scotland back in. What precedent does that set for states that leave and then rejoin? States that have wanted to join for a while. Take the case of Slovenia, for example, when they joined the European Union. It's a long process that they had to meet criteria and prove that they were economically stable enough. We've had, you know, we're, we're in a double-dip recession in this country at the moment anyway. Um, I don't think the EU wants to put it on themselves to have to bail out another country economically what would the currency situation be like there are a lot of questions that have come up that i don't think have been properly discussed and i don't think the s&p have done a good enough job yeah. of putting an argument forward you know um go ahead i don't know if you sort of agree with that sentiment or no, I, I definitely agree i completely agree with that sentiment i couldn't put it better myself really i think the currency argument really doesn't get explored enough yeah and i think that people don't Grasp the fact that, like, trade with England would be a nightmare if we didn't have the sterling, and it would be really difficult for Scots to do quite simple things like go on a holiday to England or pop over the border, as some people do. You know, people wouldn't say cross border travel is normal, you know, in an everyday life for most Scots, but for people who live on the border, it is, and people do live there, and people, yeah, yeah. you know, they travel down to London, Blackpool for their holidays. You know what I mean, it's, it's, people don't quite get that that would become really difficult, I think, if we didn't have, if we end up with the, the euro. Um, or probably even worse if we have our own currency. Um, I don't think people quite grasp that that's an issue. Um, yeah. And I think that that what won the last referendum to an extent, I think. I think the economic worries were what kind of swung it for people. But people, I think, they think, oh, well, Brexit's going to go so horribly wrong before they really know the full impact of it. They just kind of believe that it will because I think people are quite trusting of the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon's government. I think they kind of trust her and they see her as someone who they can just believe what she says. I'm not saying that people are brainwashed or nothing like that, but it's like it's a genuine trust people have. They take what the SNP says very much at face value. And I think that there isn't much of a question going on of where do they get these figures or like how do they come to decisions or like and when they don't come to clear decisions, why don't they? Do you know what I mean? I don't think there's much of a questioning of that going on. Yeah. Um and, and again as far as joining the EU again is concerned, I do think it would be fairly quick. So I mean I think it's also as Scotland has been a member state as part of Britain, we meet you know, 99% of the criteria and such. And but I also and obviously I think there's a there's a lot of fear mongering as well about how Spain will veto Scotland's entry, which I don't think will happen. They've pretty much said that they won't do that as as long as Britain consents to um, Scotland leaving, and it's a agreed referendum like it was the last time. Yeah. Um. It, it doesn't it doesn't change the fact that that could change depending if they have another government, and it doesn't change the fact that we've seen how difficult it was. For Britain to leave the EU, you know, pressures on both sides, um, within the UK and within the EU side, for Scotland to have to negotiate leaving the UK 
to negotiate to join the EU again, it's a really tire tiring activity. I wouldn't want to have to sure. be dealing with that. It would be a lot to go through. Mm. It's a lot of uncertainty for a long period of time. time. And we've seen that, yeah, exactly. We've seen Remainer parties in the UK actively did try to stop Brexit for quite a long time. And likewise, unionist parties in Scotland may seek to do the same thing. Um, it, it's a really, really difficult situation. I don't think quite that could happen. And it, I just think it's a, it's a horrible risk to take at this time. Yeah. Yeah, that's the uh, argument that I put. Sorry, bro. That's the argument that I put uh, forward uh, as well. And I, I think opposition parties, in particular the Labour Party, haven't done a good enough job of vocalising that. It's been one of my biggest frustrations um, of the Labour Party in, in recent years is, you know, not putting forward uh, a sort of left wing case for the union um, and keeping the union together and um, keeping that cooperation going and the importance of. Um, winning back seats in scotland and having you know that's returning to that stronghold um and and i think the best way to be able to sell that is to say to the scottish people yes we believe that you were done over by the conservative government um because of brexit you're reaping the some of the biggest damages so far and you know we've not been out of the eu for long you take the fishing industry for example um i was reading last week that a company that usually does uh, uh, does a million pounds worth of sales to the EU per week has only made twenty thousand pounds each week since it left the EU. I mean, just uh, crippling these these businesses that have been established since before we even joined the the EU. Um, the the Labour Party needs to put forward a solid proposal as to what Scotland would look like under a Labour government and sell that um, in order to really bolster the the mm. you know sort of unionist cause. Um, and I, I don't think that a good enough job has been done of that. And I think you're right when you say, you know, there's kind of like a, a monopoly on uh, ideas in terms of Sc- Scottish politics, or at least that's the perception um, that, that I think a lot of people have mm-hmm. down down here. Um, what, and I guess I'm interested in why you think that is. What, what do you think has been um, the, the situation that has led to the SNP having, you know, such control over the, the course of debate and discussion? Well, I think it's because Labour, obviously, in the Blair years, was very centrist, and it didn't really meet the requirements or the, the desires of Scottish voters. And I think there's there's just often um, image of the SNP in England, especially on the part of left wingers, that the SNP are these tartan Tories. I just I don't really think that's the case, and Scottish people certainly don't see it that way. I think Scottish people feel like they have a left wing government under the SNP. Yeah, it's met their needs in a way that Labour governments clearly didn't because they didn't last as long as the SNP one has, and they haven't been able to win an election since. I think that they just, I think that, I think they like the idea that there's something specifically Scottish that can meet their needs. There's, there's no sort of um, notion of dependency on the UK um, or another party. I think that um, they feel that SNP's decisions are accountable to Scottish voters only. And I think that they like that and that appeals to people, um, which is what I think is a case for Labour to separate themselves in Scotland to make their own Scottish Labour Party, which has been discussed yeah, by yeah. Um, Monica Lennon, who's running for the Labour leadership in Scotland. Um, I think that that would be quite a good idea for them. I think that they do need to focus on Scotland, because I don't think... I think I think Labour's kind of really focused in the last few years on its kind of like middle-class, southern like Londonish base, I think. That's my perception. I think that um, the Corbyn years kind of they like they they kind of felt like 
would really invigorate the sort of working class traditional communities in the north. And it did to an extent, because you can see the 2017 election results and some of and a lot of those northern constituencies did actually do quite well with Labour that year. I think also um, it really invigorated that kind of quite li like liberal, like southern, um, often graduate kind of group um, to vote Labour in a ways that they hadn't really before. And I think that the kind of energy has been there rather than in Scotland. But I think it's kind of, I think as well, there's not much of a motivation on the part of Labour to win Scotch Westminster seats because they know that the SNP are not going to put the Conservatives in charge. They don't have like a, an absolute reason to, do you know I mean, in the target, in the same way they target like the Lib Dem or, yeah. for example, like in Little Italy, they don't have that, really like the seat back. They, they don't need it to stop Conservative rule. Um, I think that's I think that's a real issue. And I think as well that an issue is that the Labour Party in Scotland, for all it had Richard Leonard, who was also quite left wing as a leader, say that the the parliamentary party in Scotland is pretty Blairite, and a lot of membership is pretty Blairite. It's quite a quite a sort of middle of the road group as Labour goes, um, and I don't think they have much of a desire to be radical or make solutions that are going to really stand out to Scottish voters particularly. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the Labour Party forming a, a you know a sort of Scottish Labour Party that's focused on uh, the mm -hmm. needs of the Scottish people is a really good idea. And what did you think um, of uh, Douglas Ross's calls for a sort of co unity, a coalition of unity, um, being rejected pretty swiftly by the uh, other opposition parties? I think it's a very bad idea to create a, a unionist kind of alliance. I think that's part of why yeah. Labour did so badly. In the last few years, because there's these images that are sort of, if you're into politics, that are sort of burned into your mind of, of the lead, Labour leader, the Tory leader, and the Lib Dem leader all standing and shaking hands and at these conferences together, and it's just like it just exemplifies what people hate about politics. It's like it, it the, the sort of it, it write, you know these criticisms just write themselves. You know what I mean? You don't, the SNP don't have to say anything if they can just put yeah. pictures like that out there that are in common view. So I think it's right that Labour doesn't team up with. Um, the other parties, and I don't think they should either. I think that, I think that, it creates a kind of a bad message to, to voters, and I don't think you're going to win back many people with this kind of idea. I think it would probably, I mean, in the most literal sense, it might stay in a couple of seats because of the arithmetic of how they calculate the votes. But like, would it be worth it in the sense of? You know, I don't think they win an election that way at all. And no, I yeah. think everyone. Would... Um, and yeah, I certainly think it would be a, a very short-sighted decision. To uh, sort of go back a bit to the uh, Scottish independence um, side of the conversation, uh, and in relation to the EU, I know Jack already sort of mentioned the, the the issues with the the fishing industry at the moment. Do you think that those kind of that well the, this this issue in particular with fishing because it's quite a um, important issue for Scottish people and that fishing is quite a large industry in in Scotland. And it's affecting them so badly. Do you think think that that will encourage the the sentiment uh, towards uh, an independence referendum, another one? I think it probably will, especially in the regions that are fishing orientated, like in like in um, the Banff and Buckingham Coast in Aberdeenshire. These are the places that fishing is such a massive part of their like economy and culture, um, and those places were the most Brexit voting parts of Scotland. Yeah, not drastically so, but they were the more much more inclined to vote Brexit than the rest of Scotland were, like considerably so. Um, and those areas are the kind of 
we're kind of historically SNP heartlands under the uh, Alex Salmond years, went conservative the last few years, and are now sort of like marginal kind of swing areas between the conservatives and SNP. So there's quite a lot to gain from this for the SNP for, for that area. Um, it's hard to tell. I think if this situation resolves itself quite quickly, which, you know, hopefully for their sake it, it does, yeah. Um, and they might just forget about it and, and they might feel a lot better about it because, well, again, so many voted Brexit to kind of have this, you know, and the better fishing rights and, and such. So if that goes to plan, as it were, then they, you know, just forget about that. But if this continues and it really drags on, um, that could be a big thing that sways them towards the towards independence. But again, you have this issue of, well, they might argue they're stuck between a rock and a hard place because. So the sentiment that they made them vote independence in the first place is probably still going to be uh, for the union, the, the EU, sorry, against the EU, it's still going to be there. Um, they're still going to be against these, um, the EU fishing rules, but at the same time, they're kind of in a bad position now. So it's an awkward one. I really, it's a, there's a lot to play for on both sides. I, I think I raised, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I think we were, we were talking to Will on the podcast uh, when we, we were discussing the EU, some of the reasons behind why. Um, predominantly working class communities poorer working class communities voted overwhelmingly to leave was because they've been so ignored by the British government um, that people felt like they had nothing to lose they had no choice but to you know vote for a little bit of change even if they weren't sure what that meant it was better than things staying the same and I think it's a again this kind of underpins the situation is that there must be so much frustration in these communities of being sold promise and being let down by by governments by politicians and i i can't imagine what they you know what people must feel like to have been told that you know the fishing industry was going to be um rejuvenated and so much more money was going to be pumped in and there were going to be no problems we're going to have loads of loads more fish to catch and whilst there is the criticism that why weren't more questions asked um about what would what the logistics would be i think the blame ultimately lies on on government and on, on leaders and um as I said earlier, right now, I don't think independence fixes those problems and you can't keep pushing communities into into making incredibly hard decisions that are going to impact, drastically impact their lives. That's not a way to lead. That's not a way to govern. People need stability. They need consistency. And that's what we haven't had for so long. And I think that those communities can't be blamed for this stuff arising if, say, there is another independence referendum and those um, areas vote overwhelmingly for independence, Scotland becomes independent and then runs into a whole host of troubles um, economically from leaving. I don't think those, again, those communities can't be blamed and they will be decimated. That's like, like you say, I think it's too big of a risk when things are as instable as they are at the moment to um, put that on those communities again. Mm. I think uh, another question in that Definitely. regard is, is what happens to these fishing uh, companies industry and the industry in general in, in Scotland uh, if this lasts longer than the next week or two because will they will um, an independence referendum for starters it probably wouldn't fix it anyway and will they even still have their business by then that's a good point is another question so yeah. I, I, I saw that Boris Johnson said after like two days after this story was was raised and there were, were real real issues were occurring both in Scotland and on the um, southwest coast about uh, you know not being up nobody being able to sell and um, he said that there would be full compensation for money lost and then the next day 
that was overturned. So even on a micro scale, you've got, don't worry, we're, we're going to, you know, bail you out of this situation. And then the next day, backtracking on that. And this is people's lives they're being played with, you know. It's it's not, I mean, it was Jacob Rees-Mogg with the confidence to stand up in the House of Commons and say that fish are happy now because they're British. It might make us all giggle a little bit, but you know we're generally genuinely talking about people's lives and people's businesses, businesses that have been established for for years. Um, and I think you know, like you say, these areas need to be given a proper route out of the situation that they're in, um, because I mean I, I hope that uh, there there will be accountability for for those that have been that have made the decision to put them in in that mess in the first place. But I don't necessarily have complete confidence that that, that will happen. No, sadly not. And I think those comments by people, comments by people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, are quite insulting to the people that are suffering at the moment. To be honest, yeah. um, if we were to sort of, I think we're probably all in, in somewhat of an agreement that it wouldn't be the best idea that for Scotland to leave the UK right now. But if we were to speculate, uh, if it were to happen, what would that look like? Do you think for the rest of the UK? What on a on a world stage, but also domestically? Um, do you think what can you see arising from that? Do you want to take that one? UK <laughs> has, it has, it has a lot of implications. I think internationally speaking, it does make the UK look quite bad. It does. Um I don't know. But I think in the immediate term, I think it would probably be quite an embarrassment for Britain. That being said, I do think um given Brexit and everything like that, I do think that people kind of um, understand that Britain's kind of going through a bit of a change at the moment in general. I think there's an understanding on the rest of the world that things are just kind of in a transition. Um, and people are quite aware of the fact that Scotland has this this constitutional debate, which is Brexit, um, also just kind of been exacerbated by it. So um, I don't think it would be the end of Britain's importance or anything like that, but I do think it would be a, it would be a bit of a red face for a little while. Um, I think Scotland would have a very tough time of finding its place in the world. Um, I think it would be, especially within the EU, I think it would be very celebrated for a couple of years. It would have a kind of honeymoon period in the world. Um, I think its importance would go downhill very quickly, sadly. Um, I think once the novelty wore off for the EU especially, um, it would kind of cease to have um, such an important role unless it made one for itself. Um, so. Yeah, I, I completely Jack. agree. No, I, I think I completely agree. Um, I think it would be, I, I, it would really sadden me. I think because I, I do think that we would, uh, you know, first of all, it'd be sad to see Scotland leave and the the the, uh, and, um, the aisle to to break up, and um, I think it would be pretty embarrassing uh, for us to leave, and um, particularly, uh, you know, England and Wales to boast so much about the position that we've put ourselves in as global leaders and just to see the whole thing sort of break up, not even what if there was a referendum in a year and two years later, Scotland became independent, um, would be three years after uh, we left the EU, I think it would be, be poor. And I don't know if it would put Scotland in, in a better position. I don't think it would. Um, I, I, I don't know if I, I don't know how easily, because of the political implications, how easy it would be them for them to rejoin. They may meet the majority of the criteria. I think the EU will want to set a precedent. I think there will be an element of the EU, um, because of how, because of what it would show other countries that wanted to join, 
um, of them not wanting uh, wanted to allow a state to join back so so quickly. But then maybe maybe they would, and if they did, I think they would be celebrated, you know. And um, I think that, that that period probably after a while would would wear off. But it, it's about where Scotland sees itself in the world as an independent nation. Do they want to be this braggadocious state that wants to be leading the world, or um, you know, do they want to take more of a introspective view and look after what the you know the affairs of Scotland and not want to be a world leader? So. You know, I think this is you know, a lot of these questions have to be asked. And what I don't want to see is the mistakes of Brexit arise again, where there's a lot of rhetoric and not a lot of productive discussion about, you know, what the actual implications, you know, like you were saying, Owen, of these decisions actually are. Um, that's what I'd want to avoid. I'd be also a little bit concerned that there would be tensions between England and Scotland, given the the land border, and obviously the I don't know how a border would work between between the two, or and I'd, I'd be worried that there'd be sort of bitterness between the two nations, maybe about Scotland leaving or from this side or or on the Scottish side from uh, the UK or the rest of the UK not being uh, uh, not putting Scotland first in any in, in any sense. And I mean, it doesn't take much to realise that's not the, that's the case. By I mean, whenever I watch PMQs and I hear the Prime Minister reply to Ian Blackford, I think he just doesn't care at all about what what um, the, the Scot- Scottish oh, position. Um, also, it would look terrible on maps. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, maybe that's what the maybe maybe that's what the uh, uh, unionist side should lead with. <laughs> the leading counter argument yeah yeah <laughs> uh, any other thoughts on the topic before we move on to current events yeah i just think that it's a, such a massive decision and i just don't yeah. think people quite grasp that mm. I, I think it's one of those things i can't really reiterate enough i think i think it's obviously because we had discussions so people think the discussion's been had and it's just a matter of like letting people warm up to it i think that's kind of the attitude on the national side like, i don't really think they've put that many convincing arguments that weren't already there before. But they have plenty of convincing arguments, so I'm not gonna end they don't, but like they don't put any new ones particularly out there, I wouldn't yeah. say. Um I think a lot of them can be quite easily like easily like put the other on the other foot kind of thing. Like a lot of them are quite kind of um they're not very objective. Um again, I think that the EU could be a massive stumbling block for Scotland in the future. I think that there's a lot of hypocrisy on the part of a lot of EU leaders and EU countries. Um one thing that really sticks in my mind is like a lot of the kind of liberal sort of like Giver Hofstadt, for example, um, was a big sort of supporter of Scotland and, you know, very much vocalised that Scotland was being very hard done by, by being made to leave the EU. Yet the Catalan sort of national party, which was in the liberal grouping in the um, in his party in the EU, um, they were actually thrown out basically at the request of a Spanish liberal party, which were in it as well, who were newer. Um, and the EU was quite disparaging of a lot of the situation with Catalonia. So I think there's a lot of people. Uh, I think Scotland should you know, think that you need to tread very carefully because, again, what's you know fashionable politically in one year will yeah. fashion very quickly. And I wouldn't want Scotland to be a victim of the fashion changing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I completely agree. Yeah. Um, okay, let's move on to, to current events. Um, the first thing... I want to talk about is um, the universal credit boost that's been being discussed at the moment. Um, so during the pandemic, the the Treasury instituted a twenty pound 
per week boost to the universal to universal credit claims um in order to help out obviously people who were uh struggling and out of work um that boost uh, is meant to end this april um at the end of april i believe or it's at the end of march it's meant to end in april april, april. Yeah. april yeah um and uh the opposition held a non-binding motion on Monday to try and extend the boost. Um, non-binding means that it obviously it was if it was voted through, which it was, the government doesn't have, doesn't have to stick to it. It's basically just a statement. Yeah. Um, the Conservatives were told to abstain from the vote, uh, but since there have been hints from the PM and the government, I think that they're considering it. Still, they're considering yeah. um, extending it. Uh, but they're waiting for the 3rd of March budget, is what I, I read. Um, uh, I have a quote from The Guardian that I wanted to read out that says, uh, they ought to resolve the uncertainty one way or another as soon as possible, the IFS says, noting that £20 a week represents 13% of an average recipient's universal credit entitlement, or as high as 21% for some, which obviously is a huge portion for people, for families claiming universal credit or, um, well, for anyone claiming universal credit generally. That's a huge amount taken away from them um, during these tough times. Um, so, I mean, my first question is simply, should the universal credit boost be extended? I, I mean, I, I think... think I... Sorry, go, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. I think it's a... Is a difficult one. Like I can see it from from two sides. Like the conservative who I am it says it's such a it's such a massive amount of money to be to be giving at this time. It it probably will involve tax rises or severe cuts somewhere else. But the other side of it is being on universal credit and has seen people need universal credit to feed themselves. And I I just don't think I can get away from that. I think it is such a lifeline, and I think it really ought to be kept for a while. I think it's really important at this time that it is kept at the same. I think it kills a lot of money, but I think I think it's worth it. Yeah, I agree. And it was um it's six billion pounds a year it would cost. So yeah, you're you're right, it's a lot of money. Um but it was it was it was put put in place and this is the argument that Stephen Crabb, who voted in favour with the opposition in the uh, opposition day motion put forward and he was saying that we understand it's a lot of money, but at the start of the pandemic, the argument was made that no money would be too much to protect the British people. And we are facing inc incredible economic hardship at the moment. This money categorically will help people. Like you said, Brett, it's a lot of money. Um, if it's taken away uh, or if a decision isn't made as to whether it's going to be extended, that causes stress and uncertainty for a lot of families. Um, it's very, very unlikely that the economic situation changes by the end of April. And therefore, I think that it should be extended. The reason that I think the government don't want to extend it, extend it, and they've offered an alternative, which I'll, I'll explain in a second, um, that's that's a sort of cheaper alternative, is because they feel that if they extend it now, it's inevitable that it will become a permanent um, increase. And I think that's the reason that Rishi Sunak doesn't want to make it. And the alternative that he put forward is will cost half the price and it's a 500 pound one-off payment to families who are currently on universal credit um i think the argument that was being made against that proposal was that this is money that families use every month um that it's not money that sits there and is there's the ability to save up um you know put away for a rainy day this is money that people are using to pay their rent to pay their bills to feed their kids 
um, that keeps, uh, in, in many cases, and in many cases it doesn't keep people's heads above water, but it's, in many cases it does. Um, and I think to take that money away from people with the current economic situation, it, is, it would be cruel, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it's um, also slightly, quite disappointing that they are that that the decision is being made to wait until the March the third budget because um, it just increases uncertainty for those families that are living month to month on universal credit and don't know whether they will they should be trying to save what they're you know getting now for the for future months that are coming because they won't be make, getting a much, uh, getting as much from from the the benefit system. Um, sorry, go on, go on. No, I was, I was going to ask, what did you make of the government not uh, showing up? What did you think were the reasons behind that? And why do you think that they, you know, they, they, they did it? Do you think it was, it was just that they don't agree with the kind of principle of the opposition day motions? Or do you think there was something else underlying that decision? I think it was, what you said, I think it was pretty much the case of a... Uh, that they didn't want, they don't see the point essentially, and it is a bit of a pointless exercise, and that it just kind of makes them look bad, I guess, if they vote against it. But also, I do think to an extent there was a risk of some rebellion along the Tory um, backbenches because I think the current intake of Conservatives are quite happy to rebel in a way that they've not been in the past. Um, I think that there's quite a lot of quite fairly vocal opposition within the party, and even to an extent, you know, in public amongst the backbenches on. Um, some of the approaches are taken. And I think it was, as you said, a combination of those two reasons, um, probably. Um, I think it was probably a right decision to make, to be honest, for, for those reasons. Um, but again, if I'd been an MP, I would have voted in favour of it. But I think categorically, it probably was right. I, so I had this... Sorry, Brett, I don't know what you thought. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I had this theory um, that I think they'll end up extending it. Um, and I think they'll probably end up making it, possibly making it a permanent um, extension. And I think that they did, or, or maybe they don't know. Maybe they just they just don't know what they want to do now. And I don't think they wanted to vote against it because at some point there's the possibility that they'll be put in a position where they have to. And they didn't want the the story to be um, Rishi Sunak extends program that you know government defeated in opposition day motion. And that was kind of my. Um, feeling towards it. I, I think that, you know, the opposition day motions, of course, they're, they're not legally binding. So that, you know, it, the argument could be put, put forward that they're irrelevant, but I think as a symbolic process that's been there for a very long time, it works well. Um, and uh, they lose, it's a lose-lose for the Conservatives because the Labour Party are now saying that they defeated the government um, and that the Conservatives have already taken the decision not to extend this, uh, it, you know, amount of money that's incredibly important to people um and the government uh, are saying that you know that's bogus but uh, the sort of idea is already there so if they vote against it they're criticized if they abstain they're criticized um so it's kind of a lose-lose for the government in my opinion and that's the problem with the uncertainty you know not only does it provide uncertainty for families but politically you leave a void as to what your policy is um and i think that's you know that's never a good thing just to, oh sorry yeah I was gonna say just to come back to what you were saying about the rebellions as well, um, there are there are so many bills going through Parliament at the moment and as we speak um, the result unfortunately has has come through that the amendment to the trade bill was defeated very narrowly um, but 
you know, another massive rebellion on, on that bill, which will come back to the House of Commons and hopefully more MPs will, from the government will be persuaded to, to back it. Um, I, you know, what do you think, Owen, are the implications of that, having this kind of rowdy group of new MPs who are more willing to go against what the government says? Um, there's a big majority, obviously, but I don't think that bodes well necessarily for the government. I don't think it does bode well for the government, but at the same time, I choose the government that they should probably be a little bit more um, collaborative, I guess, with the backbenches. Um, I think that's one thing the Conservatives should have learned from the May years, is that the backbenches really should have been listened to from the start rather than as a, after they've rebelled. Let's see, we'll try and bargain with them. It should be a case of let's try and get to grips with this. I think the Labour Party has a lot more internal democracy. I think that's why they're a bit more unified when it comes to certain things like that, because they kind of there's a lot more accountability for where policies come from, whereas the Conservatives don't have as much of a degree of that. Um, so I think that works fine when things are going well. It just means everyone just votes in this, all on the same lines. Um, but when things aren't going well, people start getting ideas, then um, people can say, well, you know, this policy wasn't even voted on by or it was just, you know, especially when things are, when policy is so reactive nowadays as well, it can be quite easy for an MP to be like, well, I've seen my constituency or my belief is that, well, I can't do this because of this reason. It's a lot more, it's a lot easier to just say no in, in a way that you probably couldn't when it comes to more standard mundane issues in the past. Yeah. Um, and I think it probably sets a precedent of how um, politics are going to be going forward, I think. Um, I think that probably... I think that especially Labour, and I think at the moment they're being quite well behaved. But I think with the um, the Jeremy Corbyn issue, that you know really showed that a lot of Labour MPs aren't very happy with um, Keir Starmer, and um, there's a number of them, um, and there's a lot of momentum activists behind these people who are very important to Labour MPs in getting them in marginals, getting them um, re-elected. So I wouldn't be surprised if we're going to see a lot more on both sides. Um, big voices from the back benches and even maybe from the government being a bit more vocal um again we're even seeing it in the SNP at the moment like they've got a lot of divides there at the moment between right. the sort of pro surgeon side and the pro Alex side and they're a bit better at hiding it and because obviously it's in Scotland it's a bit less national news yeah but, um that's ongoing and for example Jan Chai is pretty vocal about the, her issues and her problems with government so I don't know I think we're getting to a point where a lot more lot more um, emphasis put on these individual voices maybe in the mm. future yeah yeah when it comes to the uh the conservatives not or the government asking their their his their party to not um vote through the the universal credit boost or to extend it um uh, talking about that making them look bad what do you think about the arguments that people make are making in terms of um the, the, the deciding not to extend the boost straight away just sort of shows the neglect that the government has towards the poorest in our country. Because I've seen this argument come up quite a bit. Um, I'm just curious to know what you both think. I don't think it's a sort of dis like like I thought neglect lies a kind of like willing, but I do think it shows a disconnect between. And that includes maybe in civil servants as well, I would say. I'm not even going to put the full blame on the government on this. I think it puts, I think it shows 
the people in charge of the world. I don't like using the word elite or anything like that, but like, you know, the people who make decisions and haven't they had to deal with these things in their own lives. And for them, it's just another budget, a part, you know, part of the budget. It's another part, it's another thing to balance in the books. It's another policy decision. Sure. It's like most people haven't had to budget, you know, from week to week. Yeah. And I don't, I don't even think it's like, I don't think it's a, a cruelness or, you know, these evil Tories hate the poor. I really don't go that deep. I think it's just a case of, and even most Labour, Labour MPs haven't actually had to deal with this. Mm-hmm. I mean, most people in influence yeah. in this country have not gone the realities of what it can be like for some people. Um, I think it probably also doesn't help the fact that unemployment numbers, I can't, I don't know what they are off the top of my head, but still fairly low in relative terms considering everything going on. And that, in the extent, maybe doesn't help because it seems like a small number. Um, it's easy. Oh, it's only you know five percent or something. It's not as bad as other countries, but still, that's people. You know, what I mean, that's still people. Every single one of those people has their own. And I think that's a symptom of, of politics, full stop. Not even just the conservative government in this country. Yeah, I mean, what we you know, the, and it's what, essentially what we're talking about. And universal credit is an in-work benefit. Um, you know, it's not just. It's not solely an out-of-work benefit. Um, we see underemployment, right? So just because the unemployment figures aren't as bad as um maybe years gone by or they've they've improved it doesn't mean that there isn't you know lots of people who are even in work working one or two jobs three jobs who are struggling and i i agree with you i don't don't, because predominantly i agree with you because there was um a large cohort of mps who were really unhappy about this um and have been fairly vocal about it some rebelled against the government some didn't but still made their voices heard um, so I, I, I'm also slow to say, you know, it's these evil Tories who don't care about the poor. However, I think um, the disconnect that the government has between the policies that they put forward, the way that they perceive the country and the reality um, of what is actually happening on the ground is almost as bad as if they were just plotting to do this because they wanted to keep poor people down. I think it, a byproduct of their inability to grasp what is going on in the country um, is this kind of uh, perpetual cycle of, of poverty and hardship for so many people in this country, especially at the moment. Um, and we see it time and time again with different kinds of policies, whether it be this or free school meals um, or different lockdowns in different areas or the way that um, uh, you know jobs are looked at. Um, I, I think that it's something that education, it's something that crops up again and again. And I think that the that's a you know a real a real problem with the way that the country's run on you know from successive governments i don't think it's necessarily just the conservative party um although obviously as a labor supporter i would be more you know uh back in of the the labor governments of of past but you know i think it's been no government in recent memory has done a good enough job of really uh speaking on the interests of, of particularly working class communities um I think that's why the conservative backbenchers are so kind of annoyed about this because of them again they represent quite working class areas. A lot of them, a lot of yeah. them haven't got these typical backgrounds of Tory MPs. A lot of them, you know, most of them haven't been on the poverty line, but a lot of them are a bit are are of working class or quite or lower work or lower middle class background. They can understand these issues more. And I think I think it's a combination on their part of some of them. It's probably just a, for them it makes sense because they want to keep their seats. I think for a lot of them, it's a case of they do understand that people in their constituencies, you know, they read these letters and emails they get. Do you know what I mean? They're not they're not blind to these things. I think that's why they are more inclined yeah. to um, be supportive of it. I also think as well, because for all, there's a lot of these new intake from working classes. They're not really in power. So 
Surrey and Essex MPs particularly, um, who are quite dominant in the Conservative cabinet. Um, and I think that doesn't help. And I think it would be good. I mean, again, a lot of them are very recent and they're not ready to be in the cabinet yet. I think it would be a good thing to start getting them to that level where they can be in the cabinet because I think we could do with a lot more northern class generally voices in yeah. the conservative front benches. I think that's a really good point. And I think that that's something that gets overlooked. I mean, it's funny that Brett and I actually earlier were having this exact conversation. When we're talking about diversity, diversity in the cabinet, we're not just talking about the, the colour of someone's skin, excuse me, or somebody's gender. We're talking about the area that they're from, who they represent, where they grew up, what their life experiences have been. And I think that, you know, you make a really, really crucial point there in that I don't know what the numbers on this are off the top of my head, but how many MPs in cabinet came from that kind of a background or at least repre- actively represent a constituency that um, has, you know, members of from that are, that are living in those situations. Um, and I think it'd be really interesting to see, to find that out and to have more representation in government, like you say, from people from those communities. Definitely. Uh, let's move on to the uh, second current event, which is uh, the arrest of Alexei Navalny. Um, so we've we've spoken before, I think, about uh, Alexei Navalny on this podcast, and we've also posted stuff out on our social medias recently about him um, to sort of recap or give people uh, an idea of who he is. Um, I'll do a quick, quick uh, introduction for people who don't know, but he is a uh, one of Putin's biggest critics um, and the opposition leader in Russia. Uh, he was poisoned back in uh, the summer by a nerve agent, and he accuses Putin of having ordered the attempt on his life. Um, and I think it's pretty evident to anybody who isn't deluding themselves that it was ordered by the Kremlin. Um, after, I think, you know, after, especially after what we've seen in the UK, the attacks in Salisbury and um, against Lukashenko back in the uh, the beginning of the century um i think it's pretty probably quite obvious um obviously the event was quite was a huge story the event of his arrest was quite a huge story around the globe um with various politicians uh denouncing it um saying that the that putin should release him um and there were videos circling online of his arrest um and have been since uh it was a pretty incredible moment really it was a, a very significant moment in Navalny's fight against corruption um and the dictatorial state that Putin sort of masks behind this supposed di- um democracy that is really incredibly flimsy at best um <laughs> so as people from the UK we can only really speculate as to what might happen because obviously I've I'm very conscious of the fact that we don't know. I'm assuming none of us have been to Russia. I don't actually know for you, um, Owen, but me and Jack have never been to Russia. There we go. (laughs) We've never been to Russia. We don't know what the culture is like. We don't know what the sentiment is like or what the the general atmosphere is. Um, I I read somewhere about how there's a... And I think my dad could probably back it up because he, he went to Russia quite a bit, especially during the late 80s and early 90s when it was still the Soviet Union. Um, There... I, I know that there's, I think there's a sentiment there of um, sort of, they've been ruled by these these dict- dictator figures for so long that there's this sort of um, attitude to not stick your nose where it doesn't belong kind of thing. So bearing that in mind, 
what do you think will happen to Navalny? And do you think he, do you think Putin's in trouble? If you want to go um, first, Jack. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I, first of all, Alexei Navalny is a hero, um, in my opinion. I, I think the man has, you know, was something that we've said for the last week, and it's an incredibly serious situation, but the man has got the biggest balls in world politics. Um, he's just uh, the confidence to be able to in your uh, the courage to be able to have an attempt on your life seek um, safety in a, in a state where you would probably be able to stay for the rest of your life if you wanted to but instead go back to your homeland and continue fighting the fight against um, uh, a dictatorial regime is is incredibly incredibly noble and incredibly brave um, he also had released an investigative piece on uh, corruption um, and uh, an inquest into where Putin's money comes from, um, which I'm yet to to watch, but apparently it's incre- an incredible piece. So he's he's in custody for 30 days and is continuing to release pieces whilst in custody, um, which I just think is even more incredible. You know, um, I I of course worry about his well-being, but the message that he has sent to Vladimir Putin, which I don't think really has been properly said before, is that he isn't going away. There is nothing that Vladimir Putin can do to stop his opposition to uh, Putin's government. And I think that will, quite frankly, scare the shit out of Vladimir Putin. Um, for so long, he's been able to bully, intimidate or kill off his competitors um, or his opponents. Um, and the message that Alexei Navalny has sent him, which is, you know, in many ways, quite a scary one, is that you will have to kill me to, to silence me. Um, and I don't know what will happen. It's purely speculation, of course, but... Um, I hope that he will continue to work and I hope that around the world we can support him and, and, and you know, be advocates for human rights and advocates for democracy. You've had plenty of states come out and denounce it and, and call for his freedom. I think the Biden regime will do good work in this area. Um, I think they'll do good work in on China and the human rights abuses um, in China, the genocide against the Uyghur people. I think he'll do good work in this area as well. I hope so. I hope he creates coalitions. And that's all we can do. Um, You know, that's all any advocates or or states can do and just hope that over time, democracy reigns. I I was listening to a close friend and someone, a a man who seeks asylum over here, a close friend of of Navalny. Um, He seeks asylum in the UK and he was saying the only thing that's constant throughout history is change. Um, and that's the only thing that we can we can hope for. So yeah, I mean, it's it's really an incredible incredible story. Owen, any thoughts? Yeah, I just think that that like post dictatorial countries, like especially the post communist ones in Eastern Europe, especially Russia, have this issue as we mentioned of they're used to strong men leaders. That's what they're used to, um, and it's really hard to shake that off, uh, especially. In Eastern Europe and Russia, they've had they had really chaotic years after communism ended. Um, they had really tough times. All of them really did. There wasn't really a, a single Eastern European country in the nineties that had a nice time. You know, had a, a big period of regret and of anxiety. And I think when you have these authoritarian leaders like Putin, like um, Orbán, um, and then there obviously there's been in the, the slightly later rise of uh, the PIS party in Poland, they all kind of speak for this kind of we know what's best, like, we'll just get on with it, like, trust us, we'll just do it, we'll, and I think by allying themselves to things like the church, for example, as well, kind of creates, I think, an idea of independence, almost, mm. of a, these are community leaders who are good people who are supporting, therefore, we must be doing it well, let us handle it, 
And I think that message really speaks to people um, in these places, which I think is um, good. I mean, it's good in the sense that, that it's managed to help people better off than they were in the past. Like people probably don't have on day basis the same feeding themselves and you know being able to find a job that they had in the 90s which is great but it has so many other implications longer term mm-hmm. um but i do think russian cracks are starting to explain um i don't ever think it's going to be a democracy like we know it here um, i think it could get more democratic though um i think i'm pretty sure navalny's like allies did win some seats in like local elections in the last couple yeah. of years um i think and i know that they had in the one constitution in russia last year i think it was or was it early this year i don't remember um, either way, they had this referendum on the constitution, and for all it was ultimately rigged, one region actually did vote against it. Um, it was based on some really specific issue: can I get merged with another region? Um, but even despite it being rigged, they still managed to win that one region, um, which implies that there is a degree of um, um, apathy on the part of maybe like the civil service or perhaps um, some of the people who work for the government or, or the Russia Party, United Russia Party, that perhaps things are starting to change a little bit. Um, again, I don't see that being some kind of... I don't see Russia becoming some kind of western style liberal democracy at all, but I do see it becoming a more democratic place with the pressures. I don't I don't think I don't think Russia will ever go to the extent of, like, I know where it comes to how they censor their opposition. I don't think they would ever do it. I think they would take some underhand tactics, like they obviously have when it comes to Navalny and the point, what have you. Um, but I don't think they're ever going to go to the... I think they're, the, the, the image they have of being a, a semi-democracy is quite important to them. And I think they get quite a lot of um, they get quite a lot of um, what's the word? It, it sort of it justifies them a little bit. It gives them a bit of um, justification. And um, I think if they went full dictatorship, I don't think that would go down very well. And I think they probably would have that would probably jeopardise them more. It would be a pitiful victory if they start to do that extent of authoritarianism. So I think I think it will either stall where it is or it will get slightly more democratic in the future. Mm. Navalny is a very brave man taking it on because I don't think many people have the balls to do that. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you guys <laughs> think that the uh, that the world is has done enough? Like the other countries, and I know Jackie kind of touched on it briefly with the Biden administration, hoping that they would they would uh, continue to take a tougher stance. But um, do you think that other countries are doing enough? Uh, there, there has to be um, unilateral calls for for. Magnitsky style sanctions on individuals that have been involved um in my opinion uh there has to be tougher trade restrictions on states that um breach these rules you know like I kind of mentioned the the amendments to the trade bill we need to be standing up and saying you know this global Britain that is now out of the EU and um can forge its way and be a shining light and a a, a, a beacon of hope in the world in human rights in the human rights arena we need to be saying we will not do business with you unless you meet a certain standard and um i think that russia uh, uh, china have certainly certainly crossed that threshold um i think that russia have have, have done as well and i think there are other states um that, that meet that threshold and I, I just hope that more countries call for sanctions uh, the un for example i don't think has done a good enough job um it needs to reform its veto um I, I, don't, I think it's a, a, a ridiculous system um, and uh, the more can be done, more can be done. But I think that um, we, we're getting there. There are more calls for, for states to intervene in this, this area, which is good. Um, and I think somebody like um, Alexei Navalny and, and because of his courage, 
kind of ignites that in everybody else. I know I certainly have felt that after following his story and you know if he's if he's not scared in his situation to to stand up for what's right then the rest of us have no excuse really uh, any thoughts Owen? i think that um the eu could be a stumbling block to um to a unified response to russia because i, I know how dependent germany is on um russia on trade with russia and russian gas and i do think that the leaders the um the cdu the german um party they had the leadership election and they elected yeah. i think his name armin laschet um yeah. Probably not properly, but he's got a record of being quite soft when it comes to Russia and comes to Assad as well in Syria, um, which is quite a strange position for a European centre-right politician to take. But yeah. you know, um, it could be a problem. I think we're going to get a much of a strong response out of Germany from this. I hope. I hope so. I hope I'm wrong. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a more muted response. They've taken quite muted responses to um, other um, such violations of, for like example. Um, um, Erdogan in Turkey, they've been very soft on him um, I'm pretty sure someone was actually arrested for criticising Erdogan in Turkey at one point um, on an arrest warrant and I just think that Germany is quite soft when it comes to these kinds of leaders sometimes um, and that does worry me Yeah, and like the EU in particular has a responsibility um, especially to stand up to Russia and um, to uphold values you know, they recently signed uh, think it, I think they thought that this was going to go under the radar. I think they're pretty stupid for, for thinking that, but recently signed an economic development um, or an economic investment deal with, with China. You know, it's completely egregious, yeah. completely egregious. Um, and it's no, no uh, position for the EU to be putting itself in. So um, let's hope more, that, more gets done. But I, I think you're right. I don't think it, it bodes. I don't think that uh, bodes particularly well, especially the, the, the recent election in Germany. Uh, let's move on to quick fire questions then now. Um, so yeah, quick fire questions. It's, it's in the name. I ask a question, <laughs> you try and respond as quickly as possible. We generally don't stick to it too much, but <laughs> we probably should try to be a bit more. It's uh, the most controversial part of the It is. Of it, it is. Always. Especially the, yeah, the, the, always <laughs> with the food questions. They're always the most controversial. <laughs> Though I don't have any food ones today. <laughs> My first uh, question is, uh, should the universal credit boost become, become permanent? Yes, I would no. say yes. I would yes, I would also. I would say I would, so. Yeah, I would also say yes. Uh, my second question is that was very quick. I like it. Um, <laughs> second question is: Does one vaccine jab equal being vaccinated? Oh, I would say so. Okay, interesting. Oh, I, I might have to sit on the fence for this one. I'm going to pull a Keir Starmer. I think. Oh, no. It, it does for a certain period of time. The, the, the evidence shows that for a certain period of time, you're you're about 80% protected. Um, does that mean you've been vaccinated? For that period of time, I guess it does. Um, I don't quite fall in the sort of Tony Blair camp of saying, you know, let's wait 12 weeks before we roll out the second uh, dose to people. I, I don't quite put myself in that category, but... Um, I think it's. I think it, it works both ways for the government. I, I think that for a certain time you're protected, but also it gives them the ability to sort of flout the numbers a little bit and say that they've fully vaccinated more people than they have. It sounds better than you know we've given three three million plus people the first dose than to say we've vaccinated three million plus people. So there's always a bit of PR involved. Not very quick fire, but <laughs> <laughs> I I would say no. I think because. I'm too. Uh, I saw. I read an article the other day talking about the variables between each vaccine, 
and how effective each one is after the first jab um, and how long they last. And I'm for that reason, I'd say no, because I think I saw one of them said like it was only uh, only effective to about 65 percent after the first jab, which is that's not enough. I don't mm. think. Um, so I would say no. Yeah. Interesting question, though. Yeah, let us know what you think. Yes, definitely. Yeah. My third question is, and this is based on a news story I saw earlier today, is is offering a visa to 70% of Hong Kongers that will allow them to live and work in the UK enough or the right thing to do? I certainly think it's the right thing to do, personally, yeah. I personally don't. I don't think there's a solution to Hong Kong's issue. Um, I don't really think Britain has a responsibility either for the Hong Kongers. Um, I do think we agreed um, bilaterally with China back in the, when, hand, when the handover was made. I don't think we have responsibility for them in that direct sense. But as um, a democracy, we have responsibility to try and somewhat help their situation in, in Hong Kong itself. Hmm. I... Sorry, go on, Jack. No, I was going to say, the reason that I'd say yes is because I think the, situ- the situation has become so dangerous and, um, you know, for, for activists, but not only for activists, just for people that are friends or family of activists, people that are disgruntled, arrests are starting to occur. Um, the, the situation is becoming so dangerous. And, I, I you know, I, my opinion is that we should be doing more in, in, in every facet of this area. For us, again, to set the precedent and say that you are welcome here, you are, you are able to participate in our democracy... Um, we see you as our responsibility um, to stand up for your rights on the world stage, I think would be would set an incredible precedent. Um, but, you know, I, I, I kind of, I see what you're, I see where you're coming from. You know, it's, it's not a, a massive amount of people. Um, and I think that we, I think it's the right thing um, morally for us, for us to do. That's why I'd say yes. So just a bit of context, just because uh, I, I feel like I should probably explain it. The the UK government has offered a visa to seventy percent of Hong Kongers that will allow them to live and work here. My I agree with both of you to an extent. I think that um, that the UK isn't doing enough to help their plight over there anyway, and that it has become so dangerous that if people did want to flee, then I think it is a. I think that it should be they should have a place to go to. I am, however, confused by how the hypocrisy behind because basically in that case you're saying that these hong kongers are refugees they're fleeing from their homeland to find their to find a life somewhere else and yet we've been there's been a lot of uh, you know uh, hypocritical um actions from the government that have sort of turning away refugees at our borders um over the last couple of years and it, it confuses me as to why we would offer millions of people from hong kong um a place in our country but not people who are fleeing syria or or wherever else um so that confuses me i think there's a, a sentiment on quite a lot of the british right speaking as a right winger who kind of feel like hong kong is this kind of british place um, obviously it was part of Britain, well, it was a British colony until the 90s. I get where the sentiment comes from. I don't personally share it, mm. um, but I can understand where it comes from, where they have this notion that Hong Kongers themselves are like really kind of Brits abroad almost. Like I wouldn't go as far to say that, but there's a notion that they're really a really big part of our responsibility globally and that they kind of 
would integrate very well and that they are kind of like I think I think sort of they kind of romanticize um the idea of Hong Kong a little bit and they think, yeah. think of it kind of um of Hong Kongers as very anglicized, which I'm not really sure is directly the case. Mm. Um my kind of understanding just peripherally is that they're more kind of of independence than rejoining Britain. Um I think they yeah. I'm not sure how much the uptake on Hong Kong moving to the UK will be. Um but yeah, I think that's why I think that's there's this notion of of a kind of paternal instinct yeah. that all of the British right has towards Hong Kongers. I, I would agree with you though, Brett. Um, I, in in the, uh, the space of refugees, you know, you can't obviously you you can't take everybody in, but we should be doing more, regardless, to open up you know uh, institutions that allow for the safe passage of refugees throughout the globe, but also you know with Hong Kong supporting them. You know their self-determination and their ability to, to you know have a democracy whether that's taking um uh hong kong as in as refugees or whether it's you know supporting institutions in hong kong to you know be self-sustainable um and the same you know mm-hmm. same abroad uh, i think that we just I, I do think that we have that that responsibility um to, yeah, to, to yeah. try and uphold democracy in the peaceful way it's for me that i'm picturing it's probably a bit dramatic but i'm just sort of imagining the sort of these uh, hong kongers being put on a plane and welcomed with open open arms whilst refugees off our shores are being turned back in their dinghies seems like a it's just it it feels uncomfortable to me but it's probably a bit of a simplistic way of putting it (laughs) um my fourth question is uh do you have (laughs) do you have a favorite day of the week Sunday for me. Sunday. Yeah, it has to be Friday. Friday, right. Yeah, Sunday's See, mine. I would agree with Friday because I feel Sunday you're sort of dreading the week ahead a little bit. There's that anticipation that you're going to have to wake up the next morning and go to work or whatever and and you can't just sit back and relax fully. Whereas <laughs> Friday, it's the beginning of the weekend, you know that the, you know, your work's ending. <laughs> you can fully yeah, but with, chill out. Like, See, I don't have that like Sunday morning, really. I don't dread the week. No. So I like Sunday, chilled out, you know, lots of sports on, um, relaxed. Like I like, yeah, I like it. Yeah, I like Sundays. <laughs> My... You will have somebody that will like comment now and say like Wednesday is this their favorite week, day of the week, yeah. some maniac. Yeah. <laughs> or Mondays. No, no. Yeah. Surely nobody would do. No, nobody <laughs> in the world would say Monday. Nobody yeah. would say Monday. <laughs> Uh, my final question is, if you had to choose between being fluent in every language or being able to play every instrument perfectly, which would you pick? That's a good Has one. to be fluent in every language. Yeah, I'd say the same. Although you could earn so much money from being able to play every instrument perfectly. So, But I would, I would pick the languages as well. But then if you use your languages right, you could probably make a lot of money with that as well. It's true. I think it's true. I was yeah. thinking about it and finding it difficult. And I think my main reason to... I would pick fluent in all languages as well because I think there's a there's a fun part to learning an instrument. I think there's quite a, yeah, interesting. you know, the the progression you get. I I I find it more um, satisfying and and fun. Where I don't think I find it satisfying to be able to just pick up anything and play it and then put it down again. <laughs> but then, with languages, some of them are really are really hard, <laughs> and it would take but you're, so you're... long and be so difficult. And I don't know. I don't know if you you may, you may be as well, but Brett Brett's bilingual, so Brett. I mean, you're somebody that's actually 
Like, I'm bilingual like, and I play I play guitar, so I have like, experience <laughs> with both. But there we uh, go. Yeah. <laughs> but but then again, yeah, I'm bilingual as well, and I really enjoy knowing things that other people don't know. Like I just yeah. love the flex, so like, being able to like <laughs> yeah. conversations and tell what's happening, or like surprise people. And I speak Spanish and just feel to surprise Spanish people when I speak to them. They're like, oh, like how do you know? It's just I love that. <laughs> yeah. I don't think yeah. I have the same feeling. I mean. Yeah, I can have, I can just surprise people in the most obscure languages and be so much fun. Mm. Yeah, that's exactly why I choose the languages. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and how useful would it be? You could go to any country yeah, and speak to amazing. everyone. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, that was my last question. So uh, that's the end of the podcast. Thank you very much for for joining us, Owen. Owen, is there anything you want to plug? I am. I actually well, I'll plug my Twitter. Um, my Twitter is at Oilium ninety nine. Um, I also have a medium um, sort of account that I post things on there. I do sort of write things about like just politics and just current affairs and stuff. Um, mostly just from my sort of sort of moderate centre right point of view. Um, so if you're interested in that, then so yeah, thanks and thanks for having me. I've oh, had a really, been a really fun time. Yeah, good. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, we'll we'll been, make yeah. sure to link both of those in our bio as well. Yeah, in the description. Yeah. So oh, in the description. Yeah, not in our bio. Like bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> great so yeah thank you very much for listening uh, we'll see you all uh, next week like and subscribe Bye. every week like and subscribe Shh, every week it. Brett forgets to tell people to like the video and to subscribe to, to the channel you to... on your forehead I'm going to tattoo it on your forehead please make sure you like and subscribe thank you very much I for need listening to start it off the walls or something. Yeah. Jesus Christ I'll see you next week <laughs>